I'll start talking about um, the new temperance movement and how it's uh, been adopted by progressives. Temperance is a concept, you know, most people have heard of, but it's not part of their working vocabulary. Um, if you ask people why Americans are against alcohol and drugs and sex, they usually incorrectly say it's our puritanical attitudes. The Puritans viewed alcohol as a good gift of God. Um, temperance came along in the 19th century and in state after state, and then finally nationally, it banned alcohol altogether. And it's hard for people to fathom all of this. Temperance was a progressive movement. We now think of progressives as, you know, well, they're pro-cannabis for sure. They certainly drink enough. But uh, the temperance, uh, progressive movement was from the Midwest, and they saw alcohol as being a bane to the working person and to women. And so the leading forces for banning alcohol in the United States were progressives. Um, dial forward to the future. Um, Media Magazine or online magazine, you, that's a progressive thing. They just did a three-part lead article series by Benya Clark. He has a regular column called Exploring Sobriety. I quit drinking about four and a half years ago. I love to write about my own experience with alcoholism and recovery, but it's also interesting to hear the stories of celebrities who have gotten sober. Our culture is largely celebrity-driven, so when a star opens up about their addiction, it can go a long way to inspiring others to get help. For each one, you can click through to the link story to learn even more about their addiction recovery. Now, um, I just want to, again, bring up history. Um, temperance lecturers were gigantic media in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Billy Sunday was one of the most popular speakers in the United States, and he would go on stage. He was an ex-professional role player and rant about the evils of alcohol. Um, most, we can tune into that experience. If you read Huckleberry Finn, if you remember, uh, Huck was the son of an alcoholic who beat him all the time. And at one point, the reverend that was looking after Tom Sawyer decided to give uh, Pap a temperance lecture. And Pap took it to heart, swore he'd never drink again, but then in the middle of the uh, night, as Huck re regaled him the story, he got powerful thirsty and clumbed down the stanchion, got completely drunk. On the way back up, he fell off and broke his arm and was laying in the mud in the morning. And the preacher got real ornery and discouraged and said, well, I reckon you could, you know, maybe cure him of alcoholism with an ax handle or something. And Mark Twain was commenting on an experience. Mark Twain gave a lot of lectures too. He had a money problem. So he often shared the podium with a temperance lecture. And you can just see Mark Twain watching this whole operation, you know? And a temperance lecture uh, is what you hear now. It's, it's identical to the kind of thing that Benya Clark talks about. They talk about all the bad, it's, it's the same as an AA revelation. You get up and you talk about all the bad things you did. Then you quit drinking and now you're in those days in temperance, you went to God. Now you quit drinking in both cases and now your life is perfect. That, that's the way a temperance lecture goes. It's a pro forma kind of a thing. And so now 
in a progressive magazine medium, we have a, these are the lead articles. They're describing how famous people have quit drinking. And before I turn to that, there's a little question that's a little bit left out here. And Ethan asked it. You know, you and I were on a kind of little bit of a mini list. What did Ethan ask about these guys who were quit drinking? Oh, I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. He was saying, I wonder how many of them use cannabis now. And why don't they mention whether any, the articles never mention, you don't know if, I'm sorry, Benya or any of the other people smoke marijuana. Why don't you know that? Because no one cares about that. That's, that, that, that's they, don't the, wanna, they don't want to talk about it because sobriety means not smoking marijuana, basically. But they don't want to come on medium and say, oh, we're against smoking marijuana. You have to reconcile that. They do. Exactly right. Um, you can always say, always say bad things about alcohol in the United States and get away with it. Right now, you can't say bad things about marijuana. So sobriety means not smoking marijuana or taking alcohol, but they're not gonna discuss that. I, I've written about for Filter, the leading most progressive magazine in the United States, Mother Jones had a gigantic article about the dangers of alcohol. And, uh, you know, there's a guy I observe on television who, you know, was a lead editor for them. He's Jewish. And I always wanted to ask him, you, are you pro that article? Jew Jewish intellectuals tend not to be anti-alcohol, among other reasons, because when a baby is born and they have a, a, a ceremony, uh, the first thing they put on the baby's lips is alcohol, and then they sing the prayer, Bray Parihagafen, which is, blessed is the fruit of the vine. And during Passover, every person at the table, including six-year-old children, are given wine. Mm. So these tend not to be good at temperance. And the other thing, so she lauded Utah, the state she grew up with. Mormons are totally anti-intoxicants. But the Church of Latter-day Saints was the most active group in fighting legalization of marijuana in California. So in some roundabout way, Mother Jones was saying, well, we're way, and the woman was putting up Utah. When she grew up, they had a curtain that they put over the serving area so that children couldn't even see alcohol. Does that sound crazy? America's kind of crazy around that. And the woman was actually putting it up. And there are several strange things about that. So she's speaking for a progressive magazine where the leadership drinks. She's uh, saying, um, well, the Mormons really know how to do it right, although the Mormons were the most active force in the West against the legalization of marijuana. And the strangest thing of all is she blamed her breast cancer on drinking too much. However, she pointed out that she drank the most when she grew up in Utah. She wasn't a Mormon and she had a kind of a reaction against the whole thing. So in the setting that she's recommending, she, she said something like, I did more drinking before I was legally able to drink than I've ever done since, which, you know. Hold for marijuana. And by the way, when I lived in a Mormon area, I, that's when I drank most. Right. Very interesting. And now none of these people mention in medium whether they smoke marijuana 
here's who among the people they so we list 10 stars the 10 hangover co-stars are bradley cooper and zach galifianakis say that word galifianakis so cooper got so sober before he became famous which would have been early 20s and galifianakis didn't quit drinking until later when it was getting him into too much trouble <clears throat> getting we've discussed galifianakis before getting into too much trouble that's a funny concept <sighs> Are there ways to get in less trouble with alcohol other than abstaining? We have a term for that now. Harm, harm reduction also doesn't appear here. So where there's a modern medium is with it. And they don't mention legalizing marijuana and they don't mention um, harm reduction. Now here's the worst part of it. I hate to accuse people of being intellectually dishonest they include Elton John, and the medium piece says this, quote, Elton John decided to get sober after having a young friend die from HIV in the early 90s. The man's death and his family's reaction were wake-up calls to John. They're implying that the guy, the kid, the young man, died due to drug exposure. That's mm. what's implied there. But that's a lie. This is a famous case. Um, the, the person they're talking about is named Ryan White. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ryan White was a hemophiliac who had to get transfusion, and he was inadvertently affected when he was 14. Elton John decided to get sober. This is in the medium. After having a young friend die, wait a second. I, this is the real quote. I had the luck to meet Ryan White and his family. I wanted to help them, John said. Ryan was the spark that helped me to recover from my addictions and start the AIDS Foundation. Within six months, I became sober. He didn't observe somebody dying of drugs, of drug addiction. He observed somebody totally inappropriately. You know, how did this kid end up the victim? Because they had lousy blood supplies and it motivated him. So the way it's written up is it's dishonorable. It's dishonest. At least they're consistent <laughs> with, I mean, it's sort of as, as tangled up in inconsistencies as the rest of the narrative. But it's, it's almost, it's almost a direct lie. Mm. Um, <clears throat> now I wrote about for filter. Um, I wrote about two people cause their stories came out at the same time. Elton John was one and the other was grateful dead guitarist, Bob Weir. Weir had a decades-long history of relying on painkillers and drinking. That was a kind of a Grateful Dead thing. And now what? Today, Weir is, to all appearances, healthy. He has replaced a drink before going on stage with a shot of ginseng, and for the most part, pharmaceutical painkillers with herbal supplements. But he stops short of saying he's sober. This is Bob Weir. I've tried that. I'm not as happy as when I drink. Do you think he's the only person in America who enjoys and is happy when he drinks? The only one. No, I mean, I'm clearly not. He is adamant that he is able to have a glass of wine these days and stop there. Um, Banya does an, inter does an interview. Um, Benya does an interview. Bob Weir. I wonder why. You know what else I wonder about Bob Weir is, um, maybe we discussed this, but look at the plight, let's say, of Jerry Garcia. I mean, he died young, um, but 
you might say that Bob Weir and Jerry Garcia, in terms of their drug use, were basically parallel. I mean, who knows who took more or what context, but Bob Weir has a history of taking care of himself. I mean, he's always, the, the band members, of, and I've read Phil Esch, the bass player's book, I mean, he always, um, you know, after shows or before shows would be in the gym or going for long runs in it, as an adjunct or alongside drug use or partying at night. And so you might ask, you know, what is it about Jerry Garcia's lifestyle that Do you know that what caused him? Jerry Garcia died of? I think it was a diabetic episode, but uh, people say a heroin heart overdose. Attack. He was in a, his heart, his heart attack. He was in a rehab facility. He's in oh, that's city. right. He that's died right. Of a heart attack. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So harm reduction for Jerry Garcia would have been to walk every day and to go to the gym, and then he possibly, who knows? I mean, he was very, very overweight. Right. He might still be alive. That would, and he, he that, was that would be the harm reduction. And he was diabetic too. I mean, I know that he went. Uh, he collapsed on stage one time in the in the eighties, mid eighties, because of a. So yeah, there's there's health harm reduction lifestyle changes that he could have made. You that, want people to be healthy. The first thing you want people the, the, the four pillars of recovery are for you take control of your own self, but their community, their purpose, their uh, health, and um, well, I forget what the fourth pillar is, but. Home. Uh, but home. Thank you. In fact, Weir goes farther than saying he's not sober. Oh, he also sometimes uses painkillers still because, you know, God bless him. He's up there, you know, playing a guitar. For, he's over, you know, he's about, I'm 75. He's about my age. You, you, you take on some problems over the years doing mm. that, you know. I'm not sure I buy the basic tenet of sobriety, which is that you're powerless. I think that we humans are enormously powerful and I tend to think there's nothing that you can't do. It's a matter of self-mastery. That's Bob Weir. And if self-mastery amounts to total abstinence, I think that's incomplete. I think you're selling yourself short. So he, um, he didn't interview Bob Weir. Um, but Weir himself knows that he sort of almost can't be interviewed. He did give this interview. I don't talk about it much. Because, you know, he, I mean, not that people are going to run him, hang Bob Weir, but who needs that? Soros. He really throws a wrench in things, doesn't he? Yeah. So he didn't interview Bob Weir. Um, and then I just go on to uh, talk about, well, what is it? that happened to these people um, that he mentions on his list who quit drinking entirely. And what does it mean that they've given it up? And in a temperance society, it makes sense for people to get up and announce proudly that they've stopped drinking, although they lie about other things. Of course, you know, probably one of the most famous people in sobriety for a long time was Carrie Fisher and she died about I think she was 61 of a heart attack and they found in her system antidepressants painkillers cocaine um, alcohol and you know one other drug so I mean obviously when Ethan's saying oh are they taking marijuana the other thing you can say is well are they lying that's another thing you could say 
or are they, you know, like you say, completely promiscuous in their drug use. But getting back to alcohol per se, people enjoy drinking. And so um, I just, they're, you know, they have, um, they have Sundays. Who, how do people spend their Sundays in the New York Times? And everybody that they write about has alcohol. So I just, this last weekend, it was Lola Flash. I don't know her exactly. She's a photographer. How does she spend her Sundays? Capitals, <clears throat> wine, capitals, online. Happy hour has become an important part of my Sundays. That's line line two. Anywhere from three-day women come together and we talk and have a glass of wine. Um, there's a new book out, um, which was reviewed in Atlantic. Um, and it's about how throughout history, people have used alcohol as a unifying experience, as a way of getting together with other human beings. Um, alcohol provides, well, alcohol, people like alcohol. They like the taste of alcohol. They like the feelings alcohol provides. Um, they like the unification it gives them in a certain way spiritually. I mean, certain people find it very creative and liberating and they find it really community oriented. And so he's saying, give up alcohol. And he's not, the temperance version of that was, well, everybody in America should quit drinking alcohol and they banned alcohol during prohibition. Um, he's saying, well, you should check yourself out. And if you're alcoholic, you should stop drinking. But it, it, it sort of spreads wider than that. It's suggesting that you and everybody else will be happier if you weren't drinking. And it's just a funny message. It's not true. Most people don't feel that way. And you wonder how they react. When they're reading this, most people say, oh, I guess, if I were an alcoholic, that's what I would do too, I guess. Um, but it's really a way of spreading the neo-temperance message. And, and again, I say it's strange because we're at a time when Marijuana is basically legalized. The federal government's now, uh, Congress is at least passing legislation that says the federal government can impose separate penalties on states that have legalized marijuana, that whole mishigas. So it's just a remarkable thing to reflect on that we're doing all this and it has implications um, for I'll tell one other story. The New York Times has a, a column, a crime columnist, and it's written by a woman, um, and she got involved. She says she never does this. She got involved with a guy in New Orleans who was convicted of murder at the age of 19. He was carrying a gun. He had to carry a gun, he said, in New Orleans to protect himself. Um, there was one eyewitness, and everybody knows, according to Elizabeth Loftus, those eyewitnesses aren't worth anything. And this woman, whose sister happens to be work for a clinic um, at Berkeley Law School, where they do this kind of work, you know, they got him to have a new hearing and they released the guy. He's been in prison eight years for a crime he wasn't anywhere near committing. And so when she went to pick him up, she said, you know, what do you want that I can provide for you? And he said, I want to get a glass of vodka with some fruit juice in it. Guy's been in prison eight years. He's got a lot of things he wants. But that's, and you know, 
if I were in prison for eight years, that would be high on my list too, you know what I mean? And here, in an era of freedom, in an era of freedom around drugs, especially, he's pushing the idea that people should give up drinking voluntarily. And he, he's saying alcohol is a bad thing. And so I have a different proposal. And you know, people have a hard time dealing with this. Um, I'll bring up our good friend whom we both adore, Carl Hart again. Um, when drug people are asked about alcohol, their standard response is to say bad things about alcohol. They say, well, look how bad alcohol is. And that's legal. They don't understand that they're playing into the temperance mentality. Um, the correct thing, the thing that I say is, and, and Carl wants to talk about the benefits and enjoyment of drugs. That's his shtick now. But the easiest way to bring that to most people's attention is to say, you know how you like alcohol, you know? Like when you come home from work and you have a glass of wine with your partner, or you go out with a bunch of people and maybe have a hike. When I go in Idaho, when I go for a hike, they bring out, you know, if there's 12 people, they bring out a big cooler of beer and everybody has a beer. I don't know what the hell's the matter with it. Nobody's in recovery. Everybody has a beer. Maybe they are in recovery, but they fear the hell with it. And that's just a positive experience. And the best way to talk about drugs as a positive experience is people say alcohol is a drug. Is that, you know, a lot of people enjoy alcohol. Drugs can be enjoyed in the same way. And yet, leading figures in the drug recovery, in the drug um, policy reform movement, still pile in on alcohol and say, oh, look, people get addicted to alcohol. We should ban that if we're going to ban drugs. So I have a whole new concept that um, possibly will prove controversial. But... I say abstinence from alcohol is a disability. Now, people have disabilities and we don't make fun of them. And if people say, I can't drink, it's, it's their God-given right. They, they, nobody has to drink. Um, I told all of my kids how to drink um, and they all drink. But um, if you have the uh, misfortune not to be able to consume alcohol in a positive way that you can control and integrate in your life and experience the communality and the positive internal and external feelings, say la vie, we've all got problems. But I, I would call that absence from alcohol is for me a disability. Something else going on. Why wouldn't you be able to enjoy, is that what you mean? It's a, it's an infirmity. There's something the matter with you that makes, and again, right. you don't put people down if they're depressed. Um, we don't put people, obviously we don't put people down if they have a physical disability. We don't put people down for any of those things. If there's something in your system that makes it impossible for you to drink, and there, by the way, there are a range of things that do that. You, you know, my older friend, old aunt, at a certain age, she couldn't digest alcohol anymore and she regrets it. But, you know, say, you know, she's 92 years old now. Um, 
it's a disability not to be able to consume alcohol in an enjoyable and controlled fashion. I have a softer way of thinking about that, which I think it's the same, it means the same thing. Go ahead, thing. do something mild and softer, yeah. It's not, I mean, it's not mild. It's just uh, a way that I was thinking about it recently. Uh, so people know that I've, uh, by now I've mentioned, I mean, that I've been engaging in our own program, sort of, if, you know, put my money where my mouth is. And uh, Dolores is one of our coaches and she's been coaching. And one of the things that I started taking away is that I was drinking alcohol, even though it was, you might say moderate or not a large amount. Um, I would always pair it with dinner. And sometimes I was pairing alcohol with dinner, even if I didn't really feel like drinking, it was just the routine. And so I, I started thinking about that and just became more mindful and aware of when I'm drinking or why I am and why I, you know, why I would want to, what it would be giving me, which has led me to not be drinking with dinner anymore. Because actually what I found out about myself is that I actually don't really enjoy a drink with dinner all that much um, and on a given day. So what I was thinking about is that you're sort of a, somebody abstaining from alcohol is either somebody who has found an attractive alternative. And so at that level, they're not really thinking that much about abstaining from alcohol or it's somebody who if they're honest, might say, yeah, there is probably something else going on, some reason why I'm not able to enjoy alcohol in a reasonable way that could map onto a healthy lifestyle, but it's just not a problem that I'm up for addressing right now. And I think that's what you're saying. It's well, like another, a, I thought the way you were going to go was in the life process program, the way we would approach somebody who says something like, I enjoy drinking, but I'm worried about it and I'm having problems with it is we would talk through with them the way you did. Well, where and when are you drinking? And when are, is it happier or not happier? And what is leading to the happier and not happier drinking? And can we load up and push more in the happier direction, both when you're drinking and both in terms of those elements in your life? Right. So that's the, that's the kind of problem solving or be mindfulness that's involved in just incorporate it into a healthy lifestyle. And what I'm saying is that contrast that with somebody who's not up for that, who just says, well, wouldn't it just be easier if I just cut out the alcohol because it seems to be causing me problems? That person is sort of either tacitly or, you know, if they're honest or really thinking about it, they're saying there are other problems. I don't feel like addressing them right now. And I think that's what you mean. It's like, it's sort of like there's some something of a disability there that somebody has with living life normally and, and paying attention to the problems they might have in life. The way I think of it is when um, my older friend, Alt Dan says, you know, I can't drink alcohol, it's ruefully. And, you know, I understand it. You know, your digestive system changes when you get to be quite old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she'll sip some wine or beer. She has a special instrument that eliminates the bubbles from beer. And, you know, it's sort of just a memory. There's a few, you know, things that she can't do anymore. And those memories are positives. And so giving up, it's giving up a life pleasure. And, you know, sometimes you have to do that for health reasons or other reasons. It's your business. But it's something to be regretted. It's not something to be, in, it's not something to celebrate. Oh, good. More people have quit drinking. Isn't that great in America? Mm -hmm. We should have more people quitting drinking. Unfortunately, more people are dying of both drugs and alcohol. And those two things are, they're not accidental. So 
I consciously taught my children, and I had a Romanian wife, that alcohol was a positive experience to be enjoyed. Contrast that with, let's say, Ben Affleck, that he's sticking out of my mind. Do you think for someone like him, it's just um, vowing or claiming abstinence? It sort of sounds like a reputational bankruptcy, right? He's got a lot of stuff going on in his life that people think, you know, what a jerk. And he could talk about things that make his life better, but instead he's saying, I'm well, abstinent. Isn't that great? Don't put people down in the life process program. And I don't know enough about Ben Affleck. I do either. refer to him in this piece. In my memoir, um, which is called A Scientific Life on the Edge, My Lonely Quest to Change How We See Addiction, I review, the New York Times reviewed a number of books about people who are addicted mainly to drugs. And none of them, none of them fit the disease recovery model. None of them. And, and the same issue, they interviewed Ben Affleck. People with compulsive behavior, and I am one, have this kind of basic discomfort all the time that they're trying to make go away. Well, that, that's, that's not good. That's not alcohol. You're trying to make yourself feel better with eating or drinking or sex or gambling or shopping or whatever, but that makes up, that ends up making your life worse then you do more of it to make that discomfort go away. Yeah. That's our model. That's how we talk about addiction, no matter to what, to all the things he listed. Uh, he listed, you know, eating or drinking or sex or gambling or shopping or whatever. Ben Affleck is a life process proof. So that doesn't make alcohol sound like the baddie. That's what I'm saying. Like he, let me put it another way. I wasn't calling him a jerk. I don't know him either, but they're, you know, there are tabloids and articles written about him for being unfaithful to his wife or just all sorts of things that he's doing that he might respond to or he might say, if he really wanted to make a statement about how he's dealing with those things, he might say, here's one thing I'm doing, here's another thing that I'm doing. But he just put it all under the umbrella of, I'm, I'm absent now. This, this is my addict personality. That's what I mean by bankruptcy. Garrett, it's like, Garrett, throw it all there. Is, what's his, whatever has his name, Garrett? Uh, uh, Galifianakis, Zach Galifianakis. He's, yeah, he's doing a lot of crazy things when he was drinking. So naturally you go, huh, I wonder what those were. <laughs> and alcohol was causing them. And now you're not drinking, so you're not doing those crazy things, right? That's, that's, a, that's a long lineup of bowling pins right. to knock out. And not, if it weren't for the fact that we're in a temperance culture, and Greece, if he's Greek, is not a temperance, there aren't people in Greece and France and Spain and Italy who get up and give lectures. Everybody at this table would be better off if they didn't drink alcohol, which generally means wine. They don't have that. That's not a thing. Um, in Italy, every right across from the church in every village square is a cafe where the whole family goes to have lunch and wine after church. They have all different conception of what alcohol is in their lives. It's not an enemy that you fight off that makes you better. It's a part of who you are. And that's where uh, I, I think Carl, I don't think explicates this totally. He wants to normalize drug use. He wants people to understand that drugs can be a positive part of human experience and we, 
a lot of people have gone a very long way in doing that with alcohol. I mean, a lot of people know how to do that with alcohol. The woman, the photographer, who get, I mean, she's doing that because it's fun. It makes her feel good with those other people. Rather than eschewing alcohol, rather than, what's the word, castigating alcohol or making it the scapegoat, we should rather look to it as a model. And therefore, when people put down alcohol in medium, in Mother Jones, and sometimes even in drug policy reform groups, I think to myself, you're going 100% in the wrong direction. Well said.